When it comes to open source projects, and, and Whitebox is no exception, there are out there every day many thousands of people who use the software that we create as open source developers in their day-to-day -day lives, you know, for research, for education, for uh, earning money in terms of a company, revenue in a company. And so if there are companies out there that can use white box tools in order to generate their revenue, then it somewhat only makes sense, I suppose, that the, that the developer of that tool should also be able to use it, leverage it to be able to, to generate revenue. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. That voice you just heard, that was John Lindsay and you might recognize him from last week's episode. Last week, John was on the show talking about white box tools. So that was a technical episode talking about a tool set, an open source geospatial tool set that he created and maintains. This week, we're not talking about the tool set itself. We're talking about how John and his co-founder Anthony are building a business around this open source project. We're going to talk about why they made that decision, why a business is the right solution for them, what they intend to do with the revenue and how they intend to generate it. And my hope for this episode is to provide a, a template for other people that are in a similar position, other developers out there, other people involved in open source projects that are struggling to make ends meet, that are struggling to find the resources that they need to continue the work that they are doing. Now, I'm not suggesting a business is the right model for every open source project, but I do think that a lot of people involved in open source software and the geospatial world might resonate with John's story. But before we get there, I want to thank my sponsor, Lightbox. So you can find Lightbox at L-I-G-H-T-B-O-X-R-E.com. And, and what do they do? Well, Lightbox is a data platform and it's an authoritative source of North American real estate and location intelligence data. So you're probably wondering what kind of data are they an authoritative source of? So they have parcels, building footprints, administrative boundaries, census data, schools, demographics for neighborhoods, points of interest, school ratings, traffic volume for neighborhoods. As far as the property side of things goes, they have ownership information, loan and sales transactions, contacts and, and mailing addresses, historical aerial photography. So you can use the Lightbox platform to do your analysis in the platform itself, or there's a set of APIs that you can use to get a hold of the data that way and perhaps build your own analysis around it, or you can bulk download these, these data sets as files. If you're looking for a real estate information and technology platform, check out Lightbox. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it a little bit easier for you to find. Thanks, Lightbox. Really appreciate your support. Hey, John. Welcome back to the podcast. So you've been here before. Last time we were talking about white box tools, what it is, what we can use it for, and, and how you built it. And this time around, I really want to hear about the, the, the business of white box tools. It started off as an open source project, or it still is an open source project, but perhaps more of a hobby project, and now you're building a business around it. Perhaps for those of us who haven't heard the first episode, perhaps you could just introduce yourself quickly, please explain what Whitebox Tools is and give us a bit of context before we move off and talk about the, this topic of building a business around an open source project. Hi, Daniel. Uh, nice to talk to you again. Uh, as a way of introduction, I am a, a professor at the University of Guelph. And in about 2017, I started a project known as Whitebox Tools. Whitebox Tools is a um, geospatial analysis platform that is used worldwide to perform basic spatial analysis operations, much like a GIS in a box, I suppose. 
So that was in 2017. I, I remember from our last conversation, there was a significant build-up to white box tools. This isn't your first sort of kick at the can. I remember you saying something like that in, in our last conversation. So that, I think that's important to, that people understand this. But even even though you started in 2017 with white box tools, you've been going for, for quite some time before we got there, building open source software. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be an open source developer on a project like Whitebox? Is it, is it stressful? Is it busy? Is it satisfying? And what is it like? Well, it's all of those things, really. Uh, like you say, I've been developing open source software really since my PhD, so going on 20 years now. Uh, and I've been involved in a number of different projects, lead on, lead on, I guess, three major open source GIS projects at this point, including Whitebox tools. And there are definitely a lot of times where these uh, working on these projects is, is immensely rewarding, in, in particular when you're speaking to people uh, or encounter people in day-to-day -day life who use the software that you're doing uh, for their own work, for their own research. It can be very rewarding and very exciting to, to hear about how people are using it. At the same time, it can also be quite stressful at times when um, the demands of a large user community on your time become you know, at odds with your day-to-day -day work, which, as I said, in my, in my case, I work as a, as a full-time professor. And typically every morning I wake up, check my email, as most people do, and, you know, I'll see emails from various Whitebox users asking how to do this or how to do that or, you know, asking for help when they encounter particular issues. And for the most part, that can be quite um, easy for me to handle, but there are times in the year uh, in the job of a professor that can be uh, you know, a little busier than others. And at those points, you know, the, the task of managing a large open source project can be uh, a little daunting at times. And I guess that's where the business came in. Okay, so uh, again, just to recap, so you've been doing this for, for a, a long time now. Whitebox Tools was started in, in 2017. Why have you decided to turn it into a business now? What, what changed? Well, I guess it is that pulling of, of my efforts in different directions. Uh, with my day-to-day -day teaching and research associated with, with being a professor, coming at odds with my with my leadership of, of the White Box project, uh, these demands of my time in different ways kind of came to a head when I realized uh, that the community had grown to such a size that I was having a hard time with being able to provide a level of support to the user community that, that I was satisfied with. And, you know, thinking about various solutions for that, Ultimately, all of them that I could think of involved having people working on the project full time. And uh, given I'm not going to give up my day job as a professor anytime soon, that meant hiring someone and paying someone. And so ultimately, that's where the seeds of the idea of creating a business came around. So about a year ago now, a little over a year ago, we launched the company and the idea for the company came, I guess, about a year and a half ago. Um, at the time, I was speaking with some of the people at my university who work for the Research Innovation Office, the office for uh, converting research into business opportunities effectively. And they were asking me, you know, have you thought about this as a potential solution, the creation of a, of a startup company developed around the software project as a, as a means of generating revenue that you could then use to hire people to, to support the, the user community as a whole. And that was really the origin of the company to begin with. So you, you said we then, just before. Uh, have you partnered with someone on this? I have indeed. So Whitebox Geospatial Inc., the company that we formed, uh, is actually a collaboration between myself and Anthony Francioni. Again, when I was speaking to the people in our research innovation office at the University of Guelph, they early on suggested that it would be a good idea in, in doing this, having experience with many different professors who have started up companies, to have a co-founder. And so at the time, Anthony 
was working in my research group as a research associate, previously having done a master's with me. And uh, thinking about the various people that I would want to go on this journey with, very early on, I had narrowed it down to, to Anthony being the most likely candidate that, you know, would be able to complement the um, strengths that I have and, and also fill in some of the weaknesses that I have. Uh, you know, it's important in a journey like this to be able to find someone who can fill in the gaps for you, for sure. Would you mind just elaborating on that just a little bit? Like what what, what kind of skill set were you looking for? What kinds of complementary uh, abilities did, did you see in, in Anthony? And, and the reason I'm asking for this is because I think there'll be other people out there that are, that are doing similar work, perhaps in a similar place as what you are, and are thinking, you know, I, I need to create some revenue around this to have the resources to get this project where I want it to be. Um, a business might be a great idea, but doing business alone is, is really lonely. And looking for a partner could be a fantastic solution, but you need to understand what it is that you're missing, at least I think, if I'm looking for a, for a business party. So I'd be curious to know what were you missing and what, what did you see in Anthony? That's an excellent question. So, I mean, you do need to, when you start this sort of venture, be a little introspective and think about what your limitations are in particular. And I know in my case, I would say that, uh, you know, I struggle a little bit with the outward facing side of a large project like this. I, I am naturally introverted, very, very much so. And uh, Anthony is certainly better at communicating with the public than, than I would say that I am. Also, um, you know, on the business side of things, I tend to be best when I'm focused very intensely on, on you know, small uh, issues. You know, the, the development side, the coding side, I obviously excel at that. It's where I'm most comfortable. But, you know, when you're starting a business, there are all kinds of, you know, procedural aspects that, that come up that require you to sort of take a look at the broader picture. And, and Anthony truly excels at, at that. So I think, I think the things that I'm good at and the things that he's good at work together and have allowed us to, to I don't know if I can yet say successfully, given we're only a year old, but to, to you know, actually achieve this goal of, of developing a, a company that generates revenue. You use the word successful, and this is a really interesting word, and I, and I think it'd be really interesting to hear what you think success w would look like for for this business venture. And, and then I'd like to sort of move off and talk about, well, what have you tried to get there and, and what's working now? But what what would success look look like for you now with, with White Box Tools? So, I mean, I've been honest about this right from the get-go. I, I never, ever imagined White Box Geospatial as being some, you know, multinational, multi-billion dollar conglomerate by any means. It's not the end goal for this company. The company really is designed from the outset to provide support around the open source white box tools platform. We're essentially just trying to generate revenue to support, in this case, Anthony, to be able to work full-time on the company in order to help with the, with the community-facing side of things. And to me, that's success. If we can year over year produce enough revenue to be able to have uh, you know, one or two employees that can help to deal with the user community, to help create resources, learning resources around the user community, or targeting the user community, and to further the development of the open core then I, I'd say that we've achieved our goal. And that to me is, is the most important thing. I'm not in this to make millions, you know, for the last 20 years or more now, as I've been developing software, I've had numerous colleagues who have 
sort of scratch their head when they, they look at the projects that I've been developing and think to themselves and say to me very often, why don't you why don't you just quit this gig and just make millions making software? And I've long said that that's not really the, the goal of what I'm in this business for by any means. Okay, so success looks like the maintenance and development of, of these tool sets and the community that, that, that have gathered around it. So that this, I think that's a, that's a really admirable goal. I have to say that. How are you going to get there? What, what kinds of things did you start doing? Uh, was it a year and a half ago, I think, when you started the company with Anthony uh, to get you to that success, to start earning revenue, to get you to the place that you want to be? It was about a year and a half ago that we that we came up with the idea of the company, and we actually launched June of of um, uh, uh, 2021. So, so a little over, I guess, a, a year and a, and a month now. Um, in terms of the things that we've tried out in order to to you know move towards this goal of what we envision as success, boy, there have been so many things that we have trialed. Uh, I think probably one of the the most successful things for us obviously has been the creation of extension products for the open core. So over the past year, I've put a fair amount of effort into developing uh, uh, about 65 tools that can extend the open core uh, functionality. And so we've put those up uh, on our webpage for download and purchase, and you can use them to extend the, the open core. And we've done that with varying levels of success, I should say. One of the things that we struggled with at the beginning was uh, one, creating quickly enough at, at the time of launch, a compelling enough product that people would be interested in it. So I think we only launched with something like 12 to 15 tools, so considerably less. Uh, so there was a, a strong urgency, obviously, in order to make a more compelling uh, product to, to flesh out that tool set to the point where it is today. And then the pricing model, I would say, was very, very challenging for us. We um, struggled with figuring out what an appropriate pricing model. I'd say that that is something that we struggled with up until really this year. So, so probably around January or February, having tinkered with the pricing, um, you know, up and down in both directions, we finally figured out what the appropriate price would be for each of the extension tool sets. And I'd say we finally have the the right formula for that. Other things that we've tried or thought about, um, so certainly consulting, and I should say that. At the moment, it's it's safe to say that at least for year one, the majority of our income that we've had of our revenue has come from consulting services that we've done. So we've had a, a couple of contracts that um, have come in and, and have been uh, quite fundamental in, in supporting uh, supporting the company. Um, and looking forward to year two, we're we're hoping that you know a larger proportion of our revenue will be coming from from software. Uh, we've also recently experimented with uh, charging for the open core. And I say charging, but it's it's really a, a pay-as-you-go or pay-as-much-as-you-want model. So now when you download the open core from our webpage, there are some buttons that are there that allow you to select between 0 and $100 that you can pay for the Whitebox Tools open core binary to, to download. And, and that has been actually really successful for us. We weren't sure when we first created it whether or not it would be a successful form of, of revenue for the company, and it's turned out to be quite a steady, consistent uh, revenue source for us. The inspiration for that came the other day when I was downloading uh, Elementary uh, OS, which is a, a Linux distribution, and saw that they had a very similar model and thought, well, that's, that's a darn good idea that we could apply, and it's been, it's been really useful. 
congratulations. I'm sure there was a lot of sort of heartbreak along the way as you tried out these things, failed and had to iterate on them. And I think even trying something for the first time can be a little bit scary, at, at least it, it is for me. Uh, I want to talk about the the extensions that you've created. You talked about creating a compelling product and, and then, of course, getting the pricing right around that. How did you know what to create? How did you know what people wanted? Did, did you simply take some existing tools and, and like the most popular tools perhaps and put them behind a paywall or, or did you create brand new tools? I mean, we struggled with that very question at the in the early days of the company. Uh, I mean, you know, I made a commitment to the user community that the tools that, that are part of the open core, which at this point are quite substantial, I think about 460 or so tools, um, 430 tools, something like that, are are in the open core. And, uh, you know, I made this commitment that they would forever be there and that people could use them. So um, early on when we went to launch and realized, you know, we have to have a product that we can sell if we're going to generate revenue, obviously the the thinking uh, in, in discussing it with people would be, oh, well, you could just take some of these many hundreds of tools and take the ones that you know will sell and put them behind a paywall. But, um, you know, I was very much against that idea and that, that left us with the challenge of having to create new tools. So as I say, we're now sitting at about 65 or so uh, public tools. Um, there's always a few that I have sort of in the works that are in the development branch uh, that I'm testing. So I, I think it's 65 or 63 that are that are currently available. And um, yeah, in terms of figuring out which tools to create, we've, we've uh, essentially created three three different thematic tool sets, one geared towards LiDAR and remote sensing, one geared towards digital elevation models and the processing of topographic data and uh, spatial hydrology, and the third targeting agriculture. And um, so essentially what I've been doing is trying to figure out um, some, some tools that I think would have great interest in those particular application areas to focus my development efforts on. And I think, I think we've got to the point now where we're starting to see very regular sales of each of those thematic tool sets, as well as the general tool set that includes all, all the tools from the three previous tools and some extras. Uh, in particular, that product is, I would say, our, our most compelling product as far as value proposition goes, because it seems to make up the majority of our sales. And so I think, I think we've managed to get to a point now where we've fleshed it out such that we can depend month over month on regular sales. That's amazing. Congratulations on that. Getting back on to this idea of of knowing which tools to to build now, I I know that you're you're a professor, you work in the space, you work with LIDAR, you work with hydrology, you, you have all this experience. I think that you know, someone like you who's been creating so many tools for so long, you perhaps understand what's missing. But did you do any sort of market research? Were you getting feedback saying, I- I'd really like this tool here and, and now? And I'm, I'm wondering too, now that you have those those paying customers for these, uh, for these extensions that you've created, are you asking them what they would like to see more of or what they're missing? I mean, I'm in constant communication with users, both of the, you know, the customers who've purchased the extension tools and the open core. So that is definitely a source of inspiration for my development efforts. Uh, thinking about the conversations that I have with users and the ways in which they've described how they use it and how they would like to use it, that often is a, is a source of low-hanging fruit for, for focusing my development efforts. Uh, as well, obviously, my own research and, and teaching um, informs the, the development that I do, uh, looking at sort of the state of the science and, and some of the some of the advances, recent advances in particular fields can be helpful for figuring out 
where to where to focus my development efforts in creating future tools. It's always been that way, even with the open core, I would say. Uh, you know, it's it's difficult working in this space because, of course, there are the Esri's of the world, there are the QGISs of the world. And so while Whitebox Tools, I would say, does contain sort of all of the functionality that you'd expect of a general GIS tool set, its real draw is the, the uniqueness of a certain subset of tools that you aren't going to find elsewhere. And we've always known that in terms of prioritizing, particularly the extensions, that we would need to create a collection of tools that you're just not going to find elsewhere, but that have a general appeal in terms of their ability to provide solutions for people working in this space. I think too, being the expert that you are, I guess sometimes you just got to trust yourself, like trust your insight. Uh, I think when you ask people what you want, you know, what do you want as a user? It can be a really difficult question and and you might get some feedback that's all over the place and, and really difficult to understand and decipher and say, well, what, how does this translate into a product? And so it, it sounds like what you're doing is you're just trusting yourself, your insight that you have after working the space for, for so long. I was going to say an important part of that as well, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, um, is, is communicating what you've done effectively. So it's often the case where I develop a tool and I think to myself, wow, this tool is really useful. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's going to be revolutionary in a particular space. And then you announce the tool and you see that it's sort of fallen flat in terms of the user experience. Maybe Twitter doesn't pick up on it to the extent that you thought that it would. And you realize that it's not enough to just create this wonderful tool that provides this innovative solution to a problem that you know people have. It's about being able to communicate it to people in an effective form, you know, showing, demonstrating its use in a YouTube video, in a blog, on a, in a, you know, it's hard to do and perhaps in Twitter because of the constrained form of that platform. But being able to communicate what these tools do to, to users can be um, one of the biggest challenges, even more so than creating the tools sometimes. I think I think what you're getting at here is obviously communication, but packaging as well. What? How, how do you package this? How do you show it to someone? What words do you put around it? What images do you use? You know, what, what what's the argument for using this? What what is the result that the people are going to get when when they when they use this tool? I I got to tell you, I experiment with this all the time with trying to promote this, this podcast episode, for example. Almost every episode that I post on different social media things, I'll repost it many, 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 many times in different packaging, another image, a different text. And it is it is absolutely amazing how much of a, of a difference the packaging can make. But you need to be confident enough to know that, uh, yes, I'm not annoying people. I'm, I'm, I, this is not spam. I'm doing it for the right reasons. I'm trying to, you know, help people, to teach people something. But it's... I think the temptation is to build something and to put it out in the world once, you know, to get your courage together, put it out in the world once, and if it falls flat, to go, oh, I failed, I wasn't good enough. Instead of saying, well, I need to try again and having that sort of commitment to the process, I think that's super important. I mean, you're right. Uh, we've talked about this before, but if I've learned anything over the last year, it's that marketing is an enormous part of, of any business. I've learned so much about about that aspect of running a business that I never really thought about going into this process. And you're also right in that, you know, you have all these different avenues for promoting materials like, say, a new tool or a new extension, um, Twitter, LinkedIn, blogs, newsletters, etc. And to some extent, you you often are thinking, you know, am I am I just beating a dead drum here? I keep saying the same message to each of these different different uh, locations. But the reality of it, I think, is, again, you need to have the confidence in knowing that you're, you're speaking to different, if not overlapping, groups of people to each of, 
to each of these avenues and that it's important to reach out as uh, inclusively as possible to to different communities on the web when when promoting these things and that that can be a struggle at times to to get the right um, temperature for but but when you get it right boy things can take off and it can be can be quite a useful tool yeah yeah absolutely and and i, I gotta stress none of this is easy i, I really admire what you're doing and, and what you've done it's absolutely incredible earlier on you talked about consultancy so services uh, and i guess what was happening is people were coming to you and say can you you know you're experts in this can you do this job for me process this data do this analysis something like that what why is that going to be a focus going forward as well would you like to do get more work that way I mean, that's a very tough question for me to in truth. So it's it's hard because I, I think I think I always envisioned this as being a software company first and foremost. Um, but the reality is, particularly as you're starting up and as you're trying to get a community awareness of the software products and flesh the software products out, that you need to be able to support the company. And um, you know, because of my experience working in a particular area, in particular, working with digital elevation data, topographic data, um, you know, I've developed uh, a network of people who who know that these are areas that that um, you know uh, they're my my one little wheelhouse, I guess that that I excel in in terms of data processing for for DEMs, and so opportunities arose where where people within my network have have come forward and said, you know, we have this we have this chance for you to to uh, earn a little bit of money for the company while doing some some work and. Um, you know, again, I work as a full-time professor, so my opportunities to do that are relatively limited. Uh, Anthony has fortunately been able to, over the past year, take the lead on on those contracts, uh, which is great because, of course, they're providing his his salary for the past year. Um, but uh, I, I never really envisioned this as a, a services company so much as a software company from the outset. So if we deviate from that vision, certainly we'll be compromising my early intentions for what this company means and as you said earlier what what success looks like for the company which isn't to say we're not open to consulting services i just would like to see that we're able to uh, support the company to support anthony and you know if we eventually hire any other employees largely based off the back of the software products that so you make it sound like you've you've got this network and people just came to you and said, okay, great, uh, c- can you perhaps help us out with this? Was it like that or did you have to tell people, we're open for business, you can hire us for these things here? Did you have to actively reach out to people or did they just see that you had started a business and thought, great, perhaps I could hire them? So I think the web page has been quite central for this. You know, We put a lot of work early on in the foundation of the company in creating our web page. And you know a lot of effort since then in revising the web page and getting our message right out there, um, you know, putting it out correctly, I guess, and whatever that might well mean. And part of of that uh, marketing in terms of the web page has been saying, you know, we we do offer services now, and that these are our areas of, of expertise. And yeah, I, I mean, the opportunities that have arisen have largely come because. People often, people in my sort of extended network have visited the web page and seen, oh, you know, John and his and his company is is now available to to do the kinds of things that we thought that John as a professor would probably turn down, you know, because the research opportunities maybe are a little less and, and the work is a little bit more routine and not typically the focus therefore of a professor. And um, so as a result of of the the company side of things, those opportunities. 
have become more attractive for for people who might well have wanted wanted those services in the past. And so, yeah, the the opportunities have sort of landed as a result of that. Um, I wouldn't say that up until now, at least, that we have put a great deal of effort in seeking those contracts as perhaps other geospatial firms that are focused on services uh, may well have had in, in their early days, I would say. Thank you very much for, for clarifying that for us. I think that's really important to understand that, um, that a lot of this came about because you had put so much effort into the website. I mean, of course, you had the network before, but like putting a sign out in the world and saying, I am open to this kind of work, to, to these kinds of opportunities, uh, I think it is really important as well. I don't think we, I think sometimes we, we think people can, people are, are visionary enough just to imagine what it is that we could do for them instead of being specific about it and saying, we can do this, we can do that, and, and three of those things over there. I really want to talk about this pay as much as you can. I think you described it in that way when someone downloads the, the open core. Can you can you talk us through that again, please? Sure. So again, we've adopted a sort of pay pay as much as you will model or pay as much as you can model. Um, and uh, for, for the open core, the open core is open source. You can download it for free. You can look at the the um, source code. Of course, it's all available on, on GitHub. But uh, when you download it from our web page, um, in the process of downloading, you'll see that there is a series of buttons, um, you know, a little message at the top that says something along the lines of, um, you know, pay, pay what you will. The first button is $0. And of course, the majority of people will click that. And then there's like two, five, ten, twenty-five, fifty dollar, one hundred dollar increments that people can select. Uh, if they do so, then it'll bring them to essentially a Stripe page that will will take the collection very seamlessly and then return them to the location where they can download the version of the Open Core that they want. And um, this we found to be quite successful. Of course, we struggled at first with the idea of charging for for an Open Core product. Um, uh, and I think you know if if we had adopted a, a more heavy-handed approach to this where everyone who downloaded it needed to pay whatever, you know, $5, I think it probably would be seen more negatively by the user community. But uh, by and large, the feedback that we've had from the user community is in fact that uh, they see this as being a valuable way of supporting in a way that they would maybe have been less hesitant to in the past. So, you know, obviously the extensions are a little bit more pricey. They're of the order of hundreds to thousands of dollars, depending on if you're getting an annual subscription or a perpetual license. And there are many people who would like to support the user community, but that um, may not have the financial wherewithal to be able to, to do so by buying an extension. And so they've been, um, you know, that sector of, of users have been quite uh, vocal about the fact that this provides a, a wonderful opportunity for them to chip in. And, you know, honestly, $2 makes a big difference to us. Uh, you know, if, if a user downloads it and, and sends us $2, that makes a tremendous difference to us. Uh, Ten dollars—it's—it's really fantastic, and and to see these regular um, income, uh, this regular income coming into the into the company, it, it's just made it so much more viable for us. I, I actually wish more people would do this, the, this kind of pay what you can model and and implement it in in the way that you have, because I, I think you've done this absolutely brilliantly. Well, again, I won't claim to have invented this idea. I, I did not create this myself. This was stolen quite. Uh, quite literally from the from the um, elementary OS, which is also a fantastic open source project, by the way, that people should support. But, uh, you know, I think I think maybe uh, open source projects uh, as a whole are looking towards ways of, of being able to do this. And I think that that is a successful 
uh, model to, to strive for. Would you mind sharing some some numbers around this, if you can? Could you give us an idea of how many people are visiting the website and perhaps the percentage of people that are, are contributing in, in this way? Sure. So in terms of visitors to the website, I can say that at this point, since the launch of the webpage, which I think happened towards the end of, of um, May in 2021, we've had about 150,000 visitors to the site. Um, you know, it, it's up and down day to day in terms of whether we say have a, a tweet about a new tool or a newsletter or something like that. But typically, um, you know, between 200 and I'd say about uh, on, on really good days, about 1600 visitors per day. In terms of downloads from the web page, that varies as well. On a weekend, we might get, uh, you know, about 30 or so downloads. On a weekday, we get about, I'd say on a good day, maybe 60 or so downloads of the open core specifically in terms of people who choose to donate it's um it's hard to say it varies we get about 300 dollars a month uh through through those and i should say again that we only started doing this about a month and a half ago so so this is still early days we get in terms of conversion rate again it's a little tricky especially because it's, it's a fairly new thing but we get about one um, uh, purchase of the open core for about uh, every about 40 to 60 downloads so we get about one a day uh, sometimes two sometimes three times a day that that is fantastic congratulations has anybody pushed back on this like you talked about a lot of the user community being positive and seeing this as a as a, a sort of a step forward for the the toolbox itself, building more stability around it, knowing that it's going to be there in the future and well-supported and well-resourced. But has anyone said, hey, I'm not into this. I, this is free. This is open source. Why are you ruining it by making it a business? Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. So when we, when we first launched that particular feature about a month and a half ago, I won't lie, we were really nervous. Um, you know, we were waited, waiting with bated breath to see when that first download would happen after we made the feature live to see if people start, you know, if we saw that there were fewer downloads than there typically would be. So the user community saw that aspect of the new new aspect of the web page and rejected it and, you know, stopped downloading it from our page. Or if we would start to get a flood of emails from people who were irate. And that did not happen at all. So the number of downloads didn't change at all. And we haven't been approached by anyone who has said that they were upset about the fact that this is there. I think in part, it's because of the, the context around, around that feature. So it's not like we just put this up there. There's a little preamble of text before you see the buttons that download that essentially describes why it's there, what the rationale. Uh, again, as you said, you know, the idea is to, to be able to create a thriving um, project that that uh, has continued development and to be able to provide this for the, the growing user community. But also we provide a little bit of context in terms of the reality of large-scale open source projects and some of the burdens that are on the user or rather on the developing uh, the developers of, of those projects. So I make a link to I believe it's a Wired article that describes open source burnout effectively and some of the challenges that, that are associated with that. Uh, in terms of the broader question of, you know, building a business around an open source project, how can how can you create a, a for revenue business around a, a project that is based on open source? Similarly, you know, a year and a half ago when I was first thinking about this, I was grappling with that idea. Um, the reality, however, to me was that I couldn't keep going on the way that I was just as a 
the sole developer of a project that was getting so much traction. It was just too much of a, of a burden at that point. Um, and so I knew that revenue had to come in in some way. And so developing the business just seemed like the answer that everyone around me was saying is the, is the you know, logical way of being able to generate that revenue. And by and far, I'd say even though I sort of dipped my toes in the cold water nervously at the start, I now on this end of it realized that I made the right decision. You know, in particular, I come to realize that when it comes to open source projects, and, and Whitebox is no exception, there are out there every day many thousands of people who use the software that we create as open source developers in their day-to-day -day lives, you know, for research, for education, for uh, earning money in terms of a company and revenue in a company. And so if there are companies out there that can use white box tools in order to generate their revenue, then it somewhat only makes sense, I suppose, that the, that the developer of that tool should also be able to use it, leverage it to be able to, to generate revenue. And again, given at least personally, my, my view of, of what this company meant wasn't to enrich myself personally. And, and I should say, I, I, you know, we're only a year into this now, but I've not drawn any revenue from this company at this point. It, it essentially is just there to be able to support um, people to, to be able to focus on the project full time, which is something that as a full time professor, I simply don't have time to do. You know, my wife, I'm sure, would tell you that I probably dedicate far more time to the project than she would like. Uh, you know, and it's obviously off, often evenings and weekends um, of personal time, but it's a you know it's a labor of, of love. It's it's a passion of mine, and I'm happy to do that. So that that's my thought on that, I suppose. No, I, again, I, I really appreciate that. I, I really do. Um, is is your website, is that the only place I can download Whitebox tools? Is that the only place I can download it and, and buy these extensions or or uh, pay what I can? No, it's not. So, in fact, it's not even the main way I would say that people access it. So there is, in fact, a pip install. Um, so there's a, a community member who develops a fair number of the front end, Squishing Wu, who um, has put a fair amount of effort in packaging white box tools in ways that make it more accessible for user for the user community. Probably the largest of those is the pip install for, for Python users. In fact, we just passed a milestone last week where uh, it's been downloaded 250,000 times from, from the pip repository on, on PyPy. And then um, there's the Conda download and as well uh, the CRAN download for, for the R front end. So there are a number of places in which people can download the open core. In terms of the extensions, in fact, we've designed the open core so that you, um, there's just a simple command and it will automatically install the extensions for you. Uh, of course, you still need to purchase a license for them. And that, um, yes, the, the web page is the, is the place to go for, for purchasing a license extension, an extension license rather. This is going to make me sound re re really greedy and money focused, but is, is there any part of you that wishes that there was also an opportunity through those PIP installs, through those other front ends to uh, donate, to, to give back to the project or to, or to maybe sort of create some sort of bottleneck where you could only get it on our website and therefore we could reach this goal of, of, of what you described as success looking like for you uh, earlier, quicker? Oh, that's a really good question. It's um, it's true. So so obviously, downloads from our webpage are a drop in the bucket compared to PIP. PIP can have easily 
on a slow day, uh, 200 downloads to upwards of a thousand or more downloads per day of the, of the open core. Um, so, you know, if you do the conversion of, as I said, 40 to 60 downloads, uh, we get a sale every 46 to 60 downloads. Then obviously if, if, um, the people who were downloading from PIP had an opportunity to see the potential to support the project through the purchase of, of that download, then we'd be looking at a very different financial outcome for this company. I, I think we'd probably be getting close to a point where we could support the company just off of those sales from, from the open core. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, I want as many people to be able to use this as possible. And given PIP is obviously one of the more convenient ways in which the user community is obviously finding their ways to the project, then then I'm happy to have them have that opportunity to do so. Uh, Anthony and I have talked about ways in which we can capture some of those people who, and, and in truth, this is, I think, probably the case that there are definitely users out there uh, in the community who are kind of unaware of Whitebox Geospatial Inc. They're unaware potentially even of me as the developer of it because they've simply just downloaded it as a Python package on, on PIP or using PIP. And, um, you know, we've thought about ways in which we can perhaps capture some of that audience and draw them to the web page so that they can see that this library that they're using is part of a, a larger project and part of a, a larger company. And that's um, admittedly been a bit of a struggle in, in trying to figure out how we can get people to the page. Things like this podcast certainly help. Uh, things like our newsletter certainly help. And of course, tweeting and, and LinkedIn posts, those types of things um, make the community as a whole, perhaps more aware of the entity that's behind this PIP install that, that they use, um, that they do and that they, that they use in their own research and, and work. Um, but that is, that is something that, that we definitely think about for sure. So I remember from a previous conversation, you described white box tools as the back end to many front ends. And I, I wonder if this is the, the downside that what you're seeing in terms of marketing, that it's the back end. It's not very, very visible. Um, I, I know you've put a lot of work into the documentation on, onto your website. I know that Anthony is creating YouTube videos. I know that you're active on social media. But ha have, you, have you got any other ideas of how you're going to change this, this visibility problem that you have being a back end product? I mean, you're right. We, we do have this problem. This So I think... I think our company launched with a number of advantages and, and one particular disadvantage. The advantages were that we had an established user community. Um, you know, it was a known entity having developed previous previous um, projects. Uh, and so so we had, a, you know, a, a, an audience for, for our work. And that was good. But the main disadvantage is that, that, you know, I've been developing in the back end. And, you know, I said to you earlier that I'm an introvert. And I've often said that white boxes is like its developer. It's, it's also an introvert. It prefers to be in the background, and that's very much like myself. But as far as a, a company goes, this has been our single largest disadvantage. So there are probably about 10 different front ends. Um, for example, LeafMap, which is gaining quite a bit of traction, is um, uses Whitebox tools in its back end, or at least as part of its back end, I believe. And uh, there are a number of others, like the Open LiDAR toolbox. And oftentimes these front ends get much more of the attention, you know, much more light shined on them. And people don't necessarily realize that it's Whitebox tools in the background that's making those things work, or at least you know, in terms of the, the analytical side of, of things. And so we have definitely got a, a visibility problem. 
Uh, we've talked before about how to address that. I think maybe creating our own front end um, would, would somewhat alleviate that, although you know, time and resources would have to be spent in doing that. And of course, people want to use it the way that they want to use it. And in many ways, it was the motivation for creating white box tools in the first place. We talked about this in the previous episode, but you know, the reason I created white box tools was because uh, having developed previously white box geospatial analysis tools, white box GAT, many of the comments that I was getting were that people wanted to be able to use the tool set outside of the outside of the GUI, outside of the, the GIS that I had written. And so I created white box tools with the idea that it could be easily plugged into different front ends. And you know, it's been successful in that regard. And its success has been the great challenge of our company because we are a back-end product ultimately. And, um, and that's a little bit tricky to, to navigate. And I don't say that we have all the answers for how to deal with that particular problem. I imagine that you know, many of the people who might be in similar positions in terms of working on open source software maybe don't necessarily find them in, themselves in that situation, which I will find enviable for sure. But uh, yes, it, I mean, you put your finger on the, the one, the number one challenge that, that our company has, I would say. I wonder if you could gain some of this visibility that you're lacking through through strategic partnerships. I wonder if there's other projects that you could partner with that, that are a very popular front end or have uh, another audience. Or I, I wonder if there's any sort of natural sort of uh, partnerships that you could create and help each other along the way, a front end and a back end, helping each other out to be successful businesses. I mean, I like the sounds of that for sure. You know, we haven't had very many opportunities along those lines up until now. We haven't been approached by by people. Uh, typically, the front ends, as I said, are are open source projects where they're not designed around a, a business necessarily. And uh, you know, being an open source backend, they just plug it in, and and oftentimes there's relatively little communication between myself as the backend developer and the and the front end developers. Sometimes literally no communication. Um, we just find out that that uh, you know Whitebox has been embedded in, in a front end, and that's great. I mean, I love to see that. That's that's what I like to see. But it would be interesting if there is a you know a front end company. Um, looking for uh, enhancing their analytical power in the back end, if, if partnerships could could be forged to to help both companies, that, that would be an exciting opportunity for us for sure. But as of yet, none, no such opportunities have presented themselves. Do, do you have an idea of who is using it? So we, we talked about this user community, and I, I guess what I'm thinking here is that if you know that businesses are using them, using the tools that you've created, could you imagine a time where you reach out to them and say, hey, look, we, we know that you've downloaded this. Would you consider donating to this so we can continue the work? Or not donating, would you consider supporting us so we can continue you know, supporting this project, which you, know, you are dependent on? I mean, that's a, also, I mean, Daniel, you ask excellent questions, and this is why you're such a good podcaster. So, that, I mean, that's that's um, something that we've talked about in the company a little bit, I suppose, is, is perhaps reaching out to... Uh, long-term users of of the open core and, and asking them if they could in some way support the company. And that could be as small as, you know, allowing us to even say on our webpage that, you know, this organization is is um, using white box tools in, the, in their, you know, business logic. That would be, or in their day-to-day -day operations, that, that would be uh, very helpful to us, uh, you know, even if uh, financial support uh, isn't there. And um, it's not something that we've done to date, I should say. So so we have been fairly hands-off in terms of, um, you know, directing the user community towards the revenue gener generating aspects of the project. And uh, 
you know, focusing more on, on creating compelling products that we can then sell to, to help people enhance their, their white box based workflows. Um, but it's entirely possible. And I think having seen the success of the pay what you can open core model that we launched a month and a half ago, that perhaps a, a more active approach to, to, um, engaging with particularly our larger enterprise based uh, users might might be something that we should should do more actively I, think. I, I wonder alongside this pay what you can model if there was a, a model that said or, or an option that said something like uh, okay so if you can't pay here are other ways that you can help us out you can link to us from your website you can you can share that you're using these tools on, on your social media channels you could mention us in a blog post that kind of thing like th- these are other ways of letting people, contribute without paying money it would mean the world to you guys in terms of your marketing and your search engine optimization in terms of the traffic that you get to the website and ultimately a visibility which would lead to a higher conversion rate or not more conversions i should say and it would be a way of people like being part of the project contributing to something you know giving back i guess in a way without spending money i mean you're right a lot of these you know non-direct sources of support can be game changers for us you know having a link in the right place on the right web page back to whiteboxgeospatial.com is um for us golden sometimes you know every now and then we'll have a day where we look at the traffic and think what the heck has happened here we have this huge spike in traffic and we realize oh someone someone has blogged about their use of whitebox tools or someone has um you know, uh, appeal to their user community that they should support white box tools. And it's resulted in a huge spike for us and therefore more awareness, which down the road, of course, can lead to, to sales of extensions or the open core. So, yeah, I, I mean, we should probably be more proactive. Again, it's kind of a cop out to say we've only been around for a year, but um, we've been experimenting over that past year with things that have worked for us and things that have not. And looking forward to year two, we definitely need to think about some of the ways in which we can perhaps more actively uh, cultivate these types of non-financial support in order to increase the the user awareness that we even exist. Again, I think we have a, a visibility problem because we are in the back end. And uh, of course, eventually bringing more traffic to the page means more, more potential revenue. John, I'm sure we could go back and forth on some of these ins and outs of, of marketing a business all day long because you know, personally I find it fascinating. Uh, I've got a few quick questions to ask you before we wrap this up. Um, so you, you've been building open source software for a long time now and you've just started building a business. So far, which do you think is more challenging, writing code or, or building a business? <laughs> Hands down, building a business. <laughs> Uh, developing code is a joy for me. I would do it 24 seven if I could, in truth. I I love coding. I love having a a problem that is difficult to solve and spending a day or two just trying to work out the various approaches to solving that problem. Business, a lot of the challenges that you face in developing a business are a little bit more intractable, or at least maybe things that my mind isn't necessarily designed to, to deal with. A lot of the marketing aspect of things that we've talked about web page development, um, interfacing with various aspects of running a business, taxes, things like that, are things that are challenging and perhaps not necessarily things that you get into a business for, at least they're not the main activities that you really think of yourself doing, but you will find yourself doing a lot of. And, um, you know, not having a business background, a, a lot of that has been a struggle for me as I sort of learn and get my feet under myself in terms of 
sorting out how, how to deal with these particular issues. And again, that's where having a co-founder like Anthony has been tremendously useful. So anyone in a similar position where maybe they're working on or have developed an open source project and they're thinking about you know, commercializing that and bringing it to market, um, I would definitely say don't underestimate the uh, difference in your efforts with respect to the development efforts that you've probably laid the groundwork for compared to the, the business side of things. And that, you know, perhaps getting someone on your side who has uh, maybe a better better mindset for that and can fill in some of the gaps that you may well have is is well worth your while. Yeah, finding that person that has a complementary skill set, I think, is, is super important. Uh, my, my last question here, I'm sure that I I know where, where you're going to land on this one, but I'd like to ask it anyway. Who's responsible? Who is responsible for su- supporting these kinds of projects? You know, for making sure that they continue, for making sure that they're re- that they that they are resourced, that they are maintained. Do you think it's up to the developer to lift that as well, or do you think it's up to the community? Well, so I think the the developer in creating a project has a certain responsibility. You know, when I create software and and put it out there for the world to use that creation comes with it a certain responsibility for sure. And I'm very aware of that and conscious of it and think of it very frequently. But at the same time, a project lives and dies by its user community. So the fact that, um, you know, Whitebox Tools has been created again on sort of the back of my evenings and weekends and a lot of volunteer time, if you're out there using it, perhaps in your education, so, you know, in in, um, teaching, or uh, for for enterprise, if you're using it, say in a in a commercial setting, or even perhaps in government, then there's a certain responsibility to ensure that the the project thrives. And that's not just for white box, obviously, but for all open source infrastructure that we depend upon uh, for for society to function. And you know, there have been many cases where um, open source developer burnout has resulted in critical infrastructure for functioning of the internet, for example, um, essentially not being there in the future. And that's, I think, sad to see. And it's the result of obviously a user community that has taken for granted the efforts of a small number of individuals in the open source community that have been largely contributing in their own personal time. And uh, of course, it can't always go like that. And so fortunately, there are many thriving open source communities where where the user community has invested heavily in in the you know ongoing development of that key infrastructure that they depend upon, and uh, it would be nice to see that more widely throughout the open source world. I'd say, John, I, I really want to thank you for yeah for taking the time to talk with me first and foremost. I, I really appreciate it. I, I'm grateful for your insights. I, I really hope that other people in perhaps a similar position to you listen to this and can either draw comfort from it knowing that they are not the only ones that are walking around with these problems or with these feelings and also seeing that it's possible that oh, I, I can turn my my project into a business if I desire it might just you know require a a lot of work and perhaps some different skill sets. I really, really appreciate that. And thank you for creating the, these tools and sort of distributing them freely around the internet for people to use and, and enjoy and, and solve problems with. It's absolutely amazing. Um, we've said the name quite a few times, but just so everyone understands where they can go to check out your work, uh, see what you're building, what is the web address we can send people to? Uh, uh, that's That's our home on the web. And if I may, Daniel, thank you very much for having me. Um, you know, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. 
And if um, today's talk helps even just one other person who might find themselves in a similar position or might be grappling with these same issues, then I'd say it was well worthwhile. To- Thanks again, John. I-, I hope we can talk again soon. Me as well. Take care. Thanks again to Lightbox for sponsoring this podcast episode. If you are in the US or Canada and want to locate your customers and prospects using addresses, geocoding, and property information, or if you're working in real estate, government, telecommunications, insurance, energy, or utilities, check out Lightbox. That's L-I-G-H-T-B-O-X-R-E.com. And there'll be a link in the show notes of this episode to make it easier for you to find. Thanks, Lightbox. Really appreciate your support. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with John Lindsay. Again, if you haven't heard the first episode, which was published the week before this one, so the previous episode, go back and listen to that. It'll add a little bit more context and Whitebox Tools as a software product is pretty amazing. It's worth knowing about. So John is a software developer. He's been doing this, he's been working on these kinds of open source geospatial projects for 20 years now. And my guess is that John is really comfortable with the idea of debugging code and iterating on a piece of software to to make it better. And you might feel like that in your work as well. The first time you do run and analysis or you're working on a process, it's, it's not great, right? It's not as good as it could be. Not the first time around, but it gets better. It's an iterative process. John was talking about pricing. He said he really, really struggled to find a pricing model that he felt comfortable with and that worked, that converted, that, that, that people were, were happy to pay. And this was an iterative process, making a mistake, learning from it, trying again. I think we're all pretty comfortable with that iterative process when we're talking about some sort of technical environment. But when it comes to standing in front of somebody and saying, here, I made this, for some reason that this is totally different, it's it's significantly harder. At least I found it significantly harder. And I remember at the start, I was so terrified of making a mistake. I was sure that if I got things wrong, well, that was it. I wouldn't get to play the game anymore. I, w- I would be out, which is not the case. With time, I've come to realize that this is just another iterative process. John mentioned a similar thing in terms of marketing. He talked about the the need to get your communication right, to find ways of describing what it is that you're doing. And for me, I I term this as packaging. The packaging isn't working, change it. Try some new packaging, try again, iterate. And of course, all of this is significantly harder if the work that we're doing, the thing that we're making is not visible. If people can't find it, if they don't know it exists, or don't know we exist. One of the people I really look up to in the marketing world, Seth Godin, often says that the ideas that spread are the ideas that win. And I think a lot about how I can make ideas spread. So I'm not talking about being clickbaity and making promises that you can't keep, but I do think a lot about visibility. How can I make this visible? How can I make this shareable? I don't think we can expect people to care about things they don't know about. So I guess the question becomes, how can we become known? How can our work become known? Unfortunately, I don't think there's any easy answer to to any of these questions. And if there is, I definitely haven't found it because, I mean, clearly this is still a work in progress for me. Thanks very much for for tuning in this week. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. I hope that you'll take the time to join me again next week. In the meantime, if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on social media at Mapscaping on Twitter or or check out the show notes of this episode for for other ways to, to contact me. Okay, that's it for me. We'll talk again soon. Bye.